meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This week we're returning to a sermon series on God's economics. Last week we took a pause to bless the animals. And gosh, it was nice to have that blessing last week. It's good to have a little fun in church, especially these days. And to remember that God blesses all creation. In a way, blessing creation is a reflection of God's economics as well. But this week we're back to the formal discussion. Two weeks ago, I preached for 21 minutes about two characteristics of God's economics, abundance and equity, where we struggle with scarcity, with anxiety that there will never be enough, God provides abundantly. And God invites us to work for more equity, so that regardless of the color of your skin or the profession of your parents, all might know God's abundant blessings in this life. I promise I'm not going to preach for 21 minutes today. But this week, I want to take a look at two more facets of God's economics. And these two are pretty intimately linked. This morning, I want to talk about economic perspective and about the practice of generosity. Perspective. Jesus' parable from Matthew describes a group of tenants who have lost all perspective. As was true with the parable I spoke about two weeks ago, this is a story that is most often interpreted as being about Jewish-Christian relationships. And this parable, it's pretty direct about that. Still, I want to lay that aside for a bit. There is an element of the religious in this story. Jesus does mean the religious authorities to question their place. They do after he tells the tale. But again, as I did two weeks ago, I'm going to lay aside the question of Jewish-Christian relations today. Because there's an economic message in this parable as well. After his strange story, Jesus asks his followers, Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the tenants who have conspired to steal the produce killed the messengers, even his son. What will the landowner do to them? Jesus' followers respond quickly. He'll knock out those thieves, the murderers, and he'll lease the vineyard to someone else. As I said, this is a story about tenants who have lost all perspective. The story makes no sense on a literal level. How could a group of tenants think they could get away with this scheme? How in God's name could they imagine that they could get his inheritance from the Son? Now remember, this is a parable. It's a story centered around a message. The message is about perspective, I want to argue. These tenants have lost perspective. Our other scriptures today talk a lot about sin. It's a word we don't preach a lot on about here word a lot of Episcopalians aren't comfortable with, sin. One of the best explanations of sin that I know comes from the confessions of St. Augustine. Augustine talked about sin as disordered love. Sin arises when we get our loves out of order. I want to argue that the tenants in this story have sinned. They've lost perspective. They've gotten things out of order. They put their love of wealth above their relationship with the landowner. 
They have a disordered relationship with wealth. And this disorder drives the drama of the parable. It's pretty clear, no matter how you read this story, the landowner represents God. The stakes just got higher. Remember that first commandment Moses and his people receive, you shall have no other gods before me. The people have made an idol of wealth. They've set wealth up as an ultimate test. There's an economics in this story. Turning to the news. This week we heard more and more as the days went on about the man who committed acts of domestic terrorism in Las Vegas. I was stunned by one question that came up later in the week once we learned more of his background. I heard this question and again and again in the news and casual conversation. It's this question, it just, I, I kept hearing it. What like this? Why would he commit such terrorism? Wasn't he wealthy? Wasn't he wealthy? Do you hear the implicit assumption in that question? How could you be unhappy if you're wealthy? And friends, that assumption is just plain wrong. I've known some wealthy people in my life who are absolutely miserable. We say money doesn't buy happiness, but do we believe it? Really? Truly? It didn't seem so this week as we asked that question. What's our relationship like with money? Where is money in our order of loves? Another word on Las Vegas, if you'll permit me, and on disorder. The killer who took the lives of all those people a week ago tonight raised again the question about gun control in this country. We have to watch our relationship with wealth, I want to argue. We can get to disorder in our society. But if we risk a disordered relationship with wealth, we have a full-blown disordered relationship with guns in this country. Former Supreme Court Chief Justice William Berger once remarked that the Second Amendment has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat that word, fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. Those are strong words for a chief justice. Justices tend to, men, to, to carefully watch their words. The greatest pieces of fraud is how he described the way we're talking about the Second Amendment. I chose that word disorder specifically. Our Constitution does contain a qualified right to keep and bear arms. But before the Bill of Rights, in the Declaration of Independence, our founders spoke about certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those rights come first. The right to life comes before the right to keep and bear arms. It has to. But we've been behaving as if that were not the case. How many people have to die before we'll have a serious conversation about sensible gun control in this country? We have our priorities out of order. It's disorder, and people are dying. In Jesus' story, the tenants resort to violence. 
their lack of perspective on wealth that drives them to murder, sin tends to compound. Human beings are not meant to put wealth first. We're not meant to serve mammon. But how many stories can we think of of companies and individuals who chose to put profits ahead of people. It's a real danger in our society, in our day. When we get out of order, when we put money first, we lose perspective. We can end up in strange and awful places. So how do you keep perspective? One of the best ways I know to let go of the idol of wealth is to practice generosity. Now, there are a couple of problems that occur when a pastor preaches generosity. The first is that they tend to have the scriptures that bring about generosity in the time when the church is doing its annual fundraising pledges. So there's a relation here, but let it be loose. Uh, The second is that um, I want to head this one off at the pass, really. I'm not going to promise you that generosity will be some kind of magic. I won't ask you to put $10 in an envelope and send it to the church and tell you you'll receive back tenfold. Some so-called pastors run pyramid schemes and call them churches. We're not that kind of church. I will tell you, practicing generosity can change your relationship with money. Not magically, but like any spiritual practice. Generosity is inner work. Generosity is soul work. A practice of generosity can help shift your perspective and lower your anxiety about money. Let me give you an example about where we are. I meet pretty regularly with couples for premarital counseling. There's a couple of these couples in the congregation right now. Pay attention. (laughs) One of the pieces of homework that I give these couples in our session is to do a pie chart budget. I tell them that money is a factor in the overwhelming majority of divorces in this country. Conversation about money is essential to a healthy marriage. So yes, you're going to talk to your priest about money if you want to get married in the church. I ask them to prepare a budget. And I don't want to see exact figures, but I do ask to see percentages. Give me a visual representation. I especially ask these couples, as part of the homework, to pay attention to what percentage of their money they plan to give away and what percentage of their money they plan to save. I emphasize this when I'm assigning the homework. Talk together about why you are saving and for what. And talk about where you want to give your money together. How many of those couples, do you suppose, when they come back with their homework, have included savings and giving in their pie chart. I'd say it's about two in 10. And I'm not exaggerating. Pay attention if you're in premarital counseling with me right now. When we get talking about money, we tend to talk about it from the perspective of scarcity. How are we going to have enough to make ends meet? How are we going to pay the rent, the mortgage, pay off student loans? And it's not a relationship just with those at the financial ends of the spectrum. One of the strange truths about money is that um, somehow expenses rise to meet income. 
I tell these couples, don't start there. Too often, we treat generosity as a last fruit. We give $20 here or there. We say, I can spare that bit of money. Spare. The Bible asks God's people to give away their first fruits. Have a practice of generosity that auto-debits on the first of the month, just like your rent does. Give away a percentage of your income, if you can. Give so that you notice, and do it first. Make it a priority. My grandmother's generation used to say that before you did anything else, you set aside 10% of your income for your tithe, it's a different generation, and 10% in savings. Too few of us are saving. I'd encourage you to have a practice of saving. Talk with your spouse or partner about why you're saving, for what you're saving. Why you're saving tends to be a really hopeful conversation. You end up talking about education, your dream house, retirement. But generosity is even more of a perspective shift. Talk about where you want to give this money away. What causes or organizations would you like to support? Where do you want your work to be a blessing? Think about this. If you give away a calculable percentage of your income, you can think of your workday a little bit differently. If you had a long week, if you put in more than your 40 hours, or those 40 hours felt like more than 40 hours, how many of those hours did you work so that you could help feed someone, help wash someone's clothes, help support a scholarship for a minority student. Many of you have heard me quote my former rector in Washington, D.C., the Reverend Dr. Luis Leon, when it comes to talking about money. He has some of the most profound words I've heard on the subject. He used to say this, money is a powerful tool. If you can give away some of your money, you have power over the tool. If you can't give away some of your money, it has power over you. I hope you have a practice of generosity, and I hope you value the work that Holy Communion is doing enough that you want to give some of your money here. But I also hope that you're giving money to more organizations and causes beyond Holy Communion. Generosity helps us to remember that all we have comes from God. You should have received a pledge letter from the church in the mail this week. If you didn't, there are a few extras just here in the lounge. They announced the theme of this year's pledge drive. It's an oldie but a goodie. <coughs> All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Those words come from the book of Chronicles. We say them as we bring up the gifts at church. We raise the collection plates and the bread and wine and we remember all we have comes from God. What we give, we give back to God. That's the perspective God hopes us to have when it comes to economics. It's keeping things in order. We keep perspective by remembering that all we have comes from God. And we keep perspective by practicing generosity, giving back so that God's work may continue in our world. Amen.